and welcome back to another episode of NAEMT Radio. I'm your host, Rob Lawrence, and we're going through a series of episodes looking at clinical issues and clinical conditions. If you're following along, you'll remember last time we uh, had a great discussion on sepsis, and now we're going to move on to the pre-hospital management of traumatic brain injury. And to help me discuss this, I'm delighted to welcome uh, my guest this time round, which is uh, Dr. Deb Stein, the Professor of Surgery at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Dr. Stein, welcome to NAMT Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Really Thank appreciate you very much. And uh, so uh, TBI, it may be an issue that uh, everybody's familiar with. It may be an issue that some people are sort of vague about. And so as we are having a clinical discussion session on on NMT radio, I'd like to kind of go back to the to the beginning and sort of have a one oh one. What is traumatic brain injury? Yeah, it's, it's a really great question, and it's um you know it's interesting because I think the more we learn about traumatic brain injury, the more we realize we don't really understand a lot. And so, traumatic brain injury, obviously, you know, there's like a CDC definition that talks about a blow or a jolt to the head or penetrating injury. Um, but really, traumatic brain injury is a catch-all that encompasses things from a uh, brief loss of consciousness, simple, a non-complicated mild concussion, all the way through to repetitive sports injury and significant, what we now know call CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, all the way through to devastating brain injury, coma, death from neurologic uh, from neurologic uh, injury. And it's really this kind of catch-all. And I, I, as I think about brain injury more and more in my career, I think about it as kind of like saying cancer, right? And that, you know, a mild traumatic brain injury that's a brief concussion that somebody recovers from completely or has some headaches for a couple of days, is that really the same thing as somebody who comes in who's in a profound coma and winds up in a persistent vegetative state? They're just very different and diverse, but the concept is obviously injury to neurons that exist within your brain that cause some sort of dysfunction uh, at some point, either either at that time or subsequent to that. It's kind of a catch-all and a little bit vague, so I apologize for that, but it's the best I no, can do. No, no apology necessary. And of course, it's one of those things where there's, there's certain you know potential traumatic brain injuries caused by blunt and penetrating trauma that may be very, very obvious to the medic attending. And then exactly. there's going to be stuff that may be quite subtle and require, dare I say, and we discussed this actually in the last episode, a little bit of detective work oh, to work out, so. to work out, uh, you know, what the issue is. So, you know, take us through sort of presenting symptoms. What are we likely to see, you know, both from, from a, a physical perspective, from a motor perspective, et cetera? So I think that I, I would divide this up into two different um, two different discussions. One being the patient who has evidence of or concern for a se- severe traumatic brain injury, and that being patients who are in coma, patients who are unresponsive, patients who are not interacting with their environment. Obviously, uh, often the result of uh, of significant forces of uh, energy transfer, like motor vehicle crashes, falls from height, um, but also very much seen in patients who. Um, can have any kind of blow to the head and p- the patient is in a coma, unresponsive, has an abnormal neurologic examination. That's pretty obvious to most of us. However, recognizing that patients, trauma patients can have altered mental status from other causes that aren't relatable to a brain injury, like shock or hypoxia, all other things that can alter your, alter your sensorium that aren't necessarily attributable to the brain. But most of those patients, it's pretty obvious to most of us who, who work in the pre-hospital environment, what's not so obvious is those patients who have either mild cognitive dysfunction or brief loss of consciousness or 
the repetitive sports injury. And we hear a lot about this, for example, in, in high school sports and in, in youth sports, for example. And that's much more difficult to um, diagnose. And the military has really tried very hard to do this for years with blast injury, uh, making sure that people are fit to duty because we know the repetitive injury is much more detrimental than single isolated events. And so for that, there's been a lot of more interest in things like the, can you um, do a point of care biomarker testing, for example, and the FDA has recently approved a point of care test. And there's a lot of interest in can you test somebody's blood really quickly and determine, yes, a quick yes, no, that they are at risk of a brain injury versus something else going on, like, for example, intoxication, which is obviously one of the most confounding reasons why our pre-hospital providers may be either more concerned or less concerned about a brain injury because it just gets so confounded by other things that alter your sensorium like intoxicants. It's an interesting point you made there. One of the very early times I had to go in the U when I was a chief in the UK, we had to go to what, what the coroner's court to explain ourselves when the medic arrived on scene for the patient that appeared to be intoxicated, and you know where this is going, uh, and uh, had a subarachnal and expired fairly quickly. But of course, the diagnosis was intoxication. And yep. we've seen him for the 15th time, uh, et cetera. Well, of course, on the 15th time he fell over, he had a fairly bad bang to the head. And, uh, you know, a lesson was learned by all, a very, very bad one and a very, very sad one. Yeah. And unfortunately, it happens all the time. And it's and, you know, it's there is this balance between not under triaging. Uh, but there's also the real the reality that our pre-hospital providers deal with it. Many of these patients, it's not a brain injury that's their problem. It really is something that doesn't require you know, acute and acute intervention, but that's very hard to detect in the field, which is why this kind of interest in kind of can we use technology and or at least at least advances in science to somewhat to our advantage. So th this might be the obvious question, but uh, if we've just arrived on scene, you and I are, are crewmates on the truck. Uh, we, we've approached a patient, and let's say it's not a penetrating trauma where it's that obvious. But uh, what are we looking for? What what's our immediate action here? Yep. So the, the classic teaching is going to be uh, their evaluation of three different elements. One being obviously the Glasgow Coma Scale. Is it the best way to evaluate for brain injury? No. Is it the most widely used and easy to apply? Yes. There are other scoring scoring tools that you can use, but the, the GCS is really what we're, it's our language of trauma when we talk about brain injury. And so an evaluation of the Glasgow Coma Scale is really key. Um, after that, pupillary, uh, pupillary responsiveness and equality, whether the pupils are equal, unequal, responsive, non-responsive, that's really that, that's a second, uh, second element that is key, particularly in those patients who do have neurologic compromise and are, are not responsive. And then the third thing would be a gross evaluation of motor function. Are they moving all their extremities or are they not moving all their extremities? Are they moving their one side of their body preferentially over the other, which can be signs of a lateralizing sign, we call it, which is means pressure, differential pressure on the on one hand side of the brain versus the other that can be caused by a mass lesion like a subdural hematoma or something. So those three real quick evaluations can get you a lot of information up front. So we've done that. We've realized we have a reasonable or a strong index of suspicion for you sitting in the hospital. What would you expect us to do next? What sort of what sort of alert or warning? And then, of course, what sort of handover is optimal for you? Um, so I think that the, uh, you know, it depends on where you practice. Um, and obviously, duration from the scene to definitive care is really key here. Um, and so you want to minimize delay as much as possible. That's really, really important. Um, maximizing information transfer using whatever technology you have available to you is also very helpful. So certainly, for example, where I work, we always get a ring down from the pre, our pre-hospital pre providers that do provide us 
pupillary response Glasgow Coma Scale, which kind of helps us to prepare. Um, but the key things when you're kind of transporting these patients is it's all about maintaining normal normalcy, for lack of a better word. So normoxia. So not you don't want to make them hyperoxic. You don't want to give them too much oxygen. You don't want to give them too little. Normocarbia, right? Not too much CO2. You don't want them to be hypoventilating. You don't want them to be hyperventilating. Normal blood pressure. And that's really the one thing that's kind of changed over the last couple of years that we're really promoting what a normal blood pressure, what we used to say is normal blood pressure, which was greater than 90. We're now realizing that in the setting of brain injury is probably too low for the vast majority of patients that are not pediatric. And so we're really promoting a blood pressure of greater than 110 now in the pre-hospital environment, as well as in the hospital environment. Sound advice. And let, let's go back to the more extreme end. We've, we've attended a road traffic collision. Um, there is exceptional mechanism of injury on approach. We can see there is massive facial trauma to the patient. Um, I can see brain matter on approach. What do I do? So I think that there is um, a series of decision-making that needs to be done. I think one is uh, tra- rapid transfer to definitive care is is, is clearly first priority, um, safe rapid transfer to definitive care. Um, you know, I think the one issue that always comes up over and over again is pre-hospital intubation and whether or not a patient should be intubated or not. Clearly, somebody who has such a severe injury that they are unable to protect their airway they've lost some oropharyngeal reflexes, should have management of their airway. And the way that uh, PHTLS now is teaching this um, is really, it's not necessarily about oral intubation. That may be the best way to manage this patient's airway, but it's really about managing the airway. And it's managing the airway with a methodology that's most familiar to the provider that's there. So if you're resource limited and you're going to have to transport a patient 45 minutes down a bumpy road, Trying to bag that patient successfully and ventilate and oxygenate that patient successfully may be much better done with an endotracheal tube, but it doesn't have to be an endotracheal tube. And I think that that's kind of a newer concept that we're promoting now, where we really want our pre-hospital providers to be managing the airway to assure adequate oxygenation, adequate ventilation. The patient that you're describing, obviously, with significant facial trauma an oral airway or, or, or an endotracheal tube is probably going to be the way to do that best. But again, it, it has to be a function of, a, of how the uh, pre-hospital provider, how co- their level of comfort with performing that procedure. So there are obviously alternative airways as well, like king tubes and those, you know, there are a thousand different names for them, but different ways of protecting that patient's airway in, in transport. Great. You, you mentioned new things coming down the pike or potential technology to help us. Obviously, we, we, we're talking to a range of EMS systems mm-hmm. out there across the country. But, uh, you know, what's on the horizon that, that might be useful that we don't already have on the truck? So I do think that this point of care, uh, the ability to do point of care biomarker testing is going to be really helpful. That particularly, the um, it came, a, a lot of this early work came out of, for example, in Europe during, ironically, during Oktoberfest, where, you know, you have a whole bunch of people who are intoxicated and, you know, a bunch of them are falling down and who really needs to get a CT scan as opposed to who just needs to sleep it off and our ability to be able to use things like biomarkers. Um, the military has a lot of interest in some newer technology um, with respect to kind of different sensors and that type of thing that might be helpful in detecting brain injury. I don't think any of those are really ready for prime time yet. Um, but certainly the concept of... Um, can we do, uh, you know, there's a lot of interest in, for example, optic sheet, optic nerve sheet diameter to look for elevated intracranial pressure that's done with using an ultrasound probe, those types of things. But I think they're pretty far off of the pre-hospital environment yet. The point of care testing is probably the one that's closest. 
Right. So what I've heard you saying is we just have to rely on what we already have, which is starting off with the Mark One eyeball and uh, the experience that we have and uh, clearly getting that information back to you in order to prepare back in, in the hospital. And uh, the reality of EMS today is that there could be a, a long wait on the wall of the hospital to get this patient through. But uh, obviously, we have now selected that patient for you as a, as a TBI patient. You're going to be picking them up and rushing them through quickly, I hope. We certainly hope so. And there are a number of, of facilities that have really good protocols around, for example, patients who are on pre-existing anticoagulation who have evidence of head injury, where those patients you don't know, have to have a CT scan within 20 minutes or whatever, you know, different different guidelines exist different places. So I think that your point is well taken. The more information we have up front, the more we can prepare and uh, triage appropriately uh, once the patient arrives in the, in the hospital. Okay. And so therefore, it's good history taking and very clear warning, but work within the protocols that exist within the system that you work in, uh, in terms of uh, where to take the patient to and and, and who to alert. Very before we so. before we go to our, our sort of mid-show message, uh, uh, my old medical director uh, had uh, cardiac arrest and went through the full range of ECMO, mechanical CPR, you name it, he had it. One of the things that he came out with afterwards and discussed and became a thing was the fact that, of course, post-cardiac arrest, your cerebral straight is also akin to TBI as well. And I kind of, you know, signed up for, for that that thought process. And so it's not in the sort of traumatic realm. It's also perhaps post-cardiac arrest patients may well exhibit some of those some of those symptoms and symptomologies as well. Yes, absolutely. And it's really a matter of neurologic insult. And so ir- irrespective of the cause of that injury, um, the principles, as you stated, are very much the same. So it's maintaining normal oxygen levels, normal blood pressure, normal carbon dioxide levels. Um, it's And it's really, the vast majority of patients, it's, it's about what we call neuroprotection. Currently in 2023, a broken neuron is a broken neuron. We can't fix that. But what we can do is, pre- is prevent and minimize the injury to all that tissue around those broken neurons. And so it's really about minimizing tissue edema, ischemia, inflammation. And that's what all of our therapies are really about. It's about minimizing that, what we call the secondary insults. And those secondary insults occur whether irrespective of whether you get hit in the head with a baseball bat, you have a cardiac arrest, stroke, honestly, the there, many of these principles also apply really anything in which neur, neur, neurons are at risk of additional injury. And I, and I think my point there is that everything we've discussed in the last 15 minutes, it's, you know, whether it's traumatic or not, it's the brain injury that we have a part in. We, maybe we can't reduce it, but we can certainly minimize the long-term effect through the immediate actions of the medic on the street. Absolutely. And, and actually, there's there's good data on this. Like the, group, the, group, the pre-hospital groups in Arizona have, pub- have published really impressive work on this, that the, what you do in the pre-hospital environment very much matters with respect to neurologic outcome and survivalship. Wonderful. Well, thank you for that, uh, Dr. Stein. Let's just take a moment and listen to this message. Over three decades ago, PHTLS, Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support, transformed the assessment and management of trauma patients in the field, improving quality of trauma patient care and saving lives around the world. The 10th edition of this trusted, comprehensive resource continues the PHTLS mission to promote excellence in trauma patient management by all pre-hospital care practitioners through global education. In the field, seconds count. The 10th edition of PHTLS, Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support, 
teaches and reinforces the principles of rapidly assessing a trauma patient using an orderly approach, immediately treating life-threatening problems as they are identified and minimizing delays in initiating transport to an appropriate destination. To order your copy today, visit psglearning.com or follow the link in the show notes. We're back. Don't forget to like and subscribe. If you're looking at your iPhone on the platform you're listening to this podcast on, hit that little checkbox in the top right-hand corner. That means you've liked and you've subscribed. And every time a new episode of any MT Radio comes out, you'll get notification that we're here and you can carry on listening. So we're talking about traumatic brain injury and I'm talking to Dr. Deb Stein. We had an amazing first half where we talked about to all things TBI. Um, but obviously this is not one of those open and closed sort of medical issues. There's research going on. There's new discoveries being made. Uh, eventually, we may be able to you know, employ some of that at the front line on the truck. But what's going on academically, Deb? Yeah, so, you know, traumatic brain injury, and I, I think as we talked about in the very beginning, is you know, we kind of use this catch-all phrase for a very, very broad spectrum of disease. And so I think if you think about things, what's going on with respect to mild traumatic brain injury and repetitive sports injury, that looks very different than what's going on with respect to severe traumatic brain injury. And I'm, I am, uh, I, I could talk for hours about either, but uh, let's focus a little bit on what's going on with respect to severe traumatic brain injury, which is obviously the thing that really leads to people to have really life altering if they survive devastating injury, really having life altering um, effects from the, their injury. You know, it's interesting to see that there have been dozens of clinical trials that have been done. And unfortunately, almost without exception, uh, every single one has failed to demonstrate benefit. And that be whether we, whether it's neuroprotective agents or different strategies um, or different things to lower intracranial pressure. Unfortunately, uh, every high quality, large randomized trial has really failed to demonstrate. And I think that the reason behind that, maybe number one, we're looking at the wrong, we're asking the wrong questions. But number two is we're treating traumatic brain injury like it's all one big, one one thing, and it's not. There are some very interesting uh, things going on right now. Um, uh, number one, there's a large randomized trial going on uh, looking at brain tissue oxygen monitoring, which is a special kind of probe that actually measures um, the oxygen uh, in the brain tissue itself. Obviously, it's done while a patient's in hospital. Um, and so we put the special probe in and um, there's a phase three. So a trial that's looking for, to look at neurologic outcome as the outcome of interest, very large multi, multi-center um, enrolling right now. The results of that, the, prelim, the results from some of the earlier trials were really very promising with respect to being able to improve people's outcome by use of additional ancillary monitoring. The other one that's kind of interesting um, is uh, the use of hyperbaric oxygen. There's another large randomized trial that's looking at using hyperbaric oxygen as a treatment for traumatic brain injury to improve neurologic outcome. You know, when we look at some of the other large studies like that that have been done, uh, the one that many of you will probably be familiar with is the CRASH-1 trial, CRASH-2 being TXA for hemorrhagic shock, class three, uh, CRASH-3 excuse me, being TXA for traumatic brain injury, but CRASH-1 was actually steroids for traumatic brain injury, which demonstrated worse outcomes, which is why you'll hear us talk about Steroids are actually contraindicated in brain injury. TXA is another one that we get asked about a lot. What is the benefit of TXA uh, in the pre-hospital environment for patients with brain injury? Um, for those of you who aren't familiar, TXA is an antifibrinolytic, so it actually stops clot from breaking down. One of the problems with trauma patients is that oftentimes they break down their clot too quickly. TXA 
does that. We know it does that, but it also probably has some other mechanisms that occur um, in patients with brain injury. And there have been crash, the crash three trial that was done outside the United States did demonstrate benefit in a large, very large patient population of patients with suspected traumatic brain injury. Unfortunately, it didn't demonstrate benefit in those patients with the most severe injuries. There was a subsequent trial in the United States that was done that also demonstrated benefit of a two gram dosing regimen, which is why some of you may be familiar with that. But then there was another study from Europe that did not demonstrate benefits. So people ask me all the time, should we be giving TXA for brain injury? And having practiced in several different places, I think it's a function of where you practice. And so what I mean by that is if you have very short pre-hospital transport times and you can get somebody to definitive care quickly, there's probably relatively little benefit. But if you're out in the desert, if you're an IDMT out in the desert in Afghanistan or Iraq or in rural America, um, then giving TXA as an adjunct uh, to potentially uh, improve their brain in, the out their outcome from brain injuries is certainly an option that's on the table. I know obviously many pre-hospital protocols are now including that for brain injury in addition for hemorrhagic shock. I'm actually glad you went there, uh, Deb, because uh, I practiced EMS as a chief in a city very close to you in Virginia, and uh, the uh, head of surgery of our level one trauma center was not a great fan of transanemic acid. The point you made that we were too close to do any good, and actually uh, his point was, we're going to do a total transfusion in a minute, literally. Therefore, this is not something that you want to yeah. concern yourselves with because of your transport times. And obviously, to your point about whether you're downrange in Afghanistan or wherever the next downrange is, or right. indeed in a rural area. And of course, there's a, there's another issue coming up within EMS that, that a lot of hospitals are closing and rural and, and rural distance is becoming even longer. Yeah. And therefore, that's going to require even more concentrated management you know helicopters may well be there but at the end of the day it's the paramedic on the truck with the patient delivering that essential medicine yes very much so it's been an amazing conversation and uh, i always ask this question and people are probably fed up with hearing it but is there anything i've forgotten to ask you or anything you need to tell us um i think that there are a couple of principles that i would love to just kind of reiterate maybe i probably have already said them but things that um that i get either get asked about or things that come up when we talk about qi you know qiing our own patient care you know, this issue of, um, of pre-hospital intubation and, um, and hyperventilation, which comes up a lot. And I know that, that many of your, your listeners will be very familiar with this concept of, of that what, why, why pre-hospital intubation went out of fate for brain injury, went out of favor for a while was this, it was the problem of hyperventilation, meaning hyperventilation is really bad for the injured brain. And so the first thing anybody does when they successfully intubate a patient is they go ahead and they bag them really quickly and really deeply because that's what we all do. Um, and so one of the things that that's why there was kind of this early data that said the pre-hospital intubation was bad for your brain. I, so I would just encourage your, your listeners that if you are going to intubate the patient, cause that's the right thing to do. And you want, that's, that's how you've decided to manage the airway. Please be very careful about really using end tidal CO2 monitoring to regulate how you're ventilating the patient. And ideally, obviously between about 35 and 45 is about, is about right for most patients. The huge exception to that would be the patient who's manifesting signs and symptoms of active herniation. And those are going to be your patients with have blown their pupils or hypertensive and bradycardic manifesting really malignant elevated intracranial pressure. Those patients, you can go ahead and hyperventilate. But everybody else, you really want to try to avoid it because that's kind of the one thing we know that we can we, that we have control over uh, that we can do to benefit our patient population. The other one, um, the other thing I would mention is this issue about blood pressure. Um, and we, you know, again, the systolic blood pressure greater than 90 that we all were raised with, right? 91 is perfectly fine. You know, 89 is not, but 91 is okay. 
in the setting of brain injury is just not reasonable for most adults. And so you really do want to target a higher blood pressure of greater than 110 uh, in your patient with brain injury and try to maintain it up there. Now, how you do that is a really interesting topic, which we could talk about for an extended period of time. Um, but because obviously we don't want to be flooding our patients with crystalloid either, but um, this concept of maintaining uh, higher blood pressure than what we were all, were all traditionally traditionally taught years ago and maintaining the normal CO2 levels is really the kind of two key things that I look for when a patient comes in with a bad brain injury. Well, you've delivered a number of amazing pearls there, and, and thank you for that. We obviously uh, have uh, a, lot of, a lot of publications and a lot of things to put in the show notes that we just mentioned, and obviously we make sure that all those links uh, and discussions are in there. Uh, but uh, how can we follow you uh, in your practice and activity? Well, I, I try to keep, <laughs> I was telling Rob before we started, I try to keep a very low profile. So I do actually have a Twitter account. Um, I, I am, uh, I think it's, oh, a Steinsys, S-T-E-I-N-S-I-S. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> but I don't really have much of a presence. But if anybody needs, would like to reach me or would like more information or discussion, I'm always happy to have conversations. Please feel free to reach out to me by email. Uh, the University of Maryland School of Medicine, my, my email is on there. Uh, please feel free at any time. It's never a problem. Okay, well, I'm going to make sure I follow at Steinsys straight away. And so I suggest <laughs> that everybody out there that's uh, on in the Twitter sphere uh, follow. Uh, You'll be sadly um, disappointed. but <laughs> Well, you never know, because if you can continue to deliver the, the gems and the pearls that you've just given us in the last half an hour, I think we'll be very happy. So uh, I hope uh, sometime you'll come back and join us again on NEMT Radio. But uh, for the moment, uh, Dr. Deb Stein, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Rob. Really appreciate it. Great. Well, that was another great uh, discussion on on an amazing clinical topic. We have many more clinical topics lined up uh, as we go through NEMT Radio. But uh, don't forget uh, all the resources and everything you need to know. And if you're not a member, you can also join NEMT just by visiting NAMT.org. It's as simple as that. Please leave any comments by reaching out to us at naemt.org. Leave a comment in the notes on the platform in which you're listening to us on. That's a tongue twister. I have to get used to saying that. For the moment, uh, my guest was Dr. Deb Stein. This has been NAEMT Radio. I've been Rob Lawrence. And until next time, bye for now. <laughs>